All right, so I'm going to read to you, uh, again, part of uh, Colossians, I'm going to read to you tonight from the, from the Christian Standard Version, even though we normally read from the English Standard Version, uh, but nonetheless, I'm going to read verses uh, 24, well, let me just go ahead and start with 21, I'll read 21 through the end of the chapter, again, to give us kind of a flow as to Paul's thought and uh, the ideas that he's developing. <clears throat> Again, he says, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions. But now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Before we go on, let me just kind of remind you of a couple of things. Uh, Paul is, as he's writing, he's, he's correcting and helping to fortify them against some false doctrine that they're, that they're being given, that they're being fed. And we'll go into a little bit of detail about that uh, next week. So he reminds them that as individuals, when he says that you are alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, that kind of phrasing caused us to think that it was some kind of what we call Gnostic teaching. Now, Gnosticism itself didn't really develop till a little later, but some of the tentacles of Gnosticism have been around for a long time. So basically what he's letting them know then is we would say this, that in your mind or in your soul and in your body, you were evil. You were alienated from God. Uh, he's not allowing them to think in terms of the soul and the body or the mind and the body as being separate from each other. They are distinct, but we're also holistic. You, got, you have to have both together. Uh, and this is to, to, co to combat the idea that <clears throat> that kind of comes out of Gnosticism, which is that because the body is evil, but it's got nothing to do with the soul, it doesn't matter what you do in the body. And of course, it does matter what you do in the body. Uh, when God redeems us, you know, we talk about being saved and we know that we're going to go to heaven. And that's all good, but there's also this idea that we are being transformed into the image of Christ. That's my mind, that's my, my will, that is my emotions, that's every aspect of my humanity uh, is being transformed by God. Uh, so there's no allowance there for us to kind of divide our life up in that way. And then, of course, along with that then, he wants to present us uh, to God, again, holistically that we're without fault, that we are holy, or that we've been kind of separated uh, to God, that we are blameless, that would be in our minds, our thoughts, as well as our actions. So it's the whole person that's still involved in all of this. Um, and so that's why it's, it's written the way that, that it is. So verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is, the church. Remember that the easiest way to remember what Paul is talking about there, because that phrasing can be a little uh, confusing at times. It says, when he, I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's, remember, he's not saying that there was something lacking in Christ's suffering and death. It really is the idea that he is now taking his turn in the sufferings of Christ. So Christ suffered for us completely and died for our sins and... He fully satisfied the wrath of God. He paid the penalty in full. So there's nothing lacking in that. But the idea is, and we see this throughout the New Testament, and that is, is that believers, it's an expectation that there's going to be suffering. Um, we're not all going to suffer the same, and suffering is not the same in every age, but there is persecution of believers. And through every age, somewhere in the world, believers are being persecuted sometimes very severely, just for their faith in Christ. So Paul says that his suffering, it's not an anomaly. He's not surprised by this. He's glad to suffer for the <clears throat> sake of Christ. And in a sense, he's saying, it's now, it's my turn. Uh, it's my turn now to suffer. He's, he fully accepts that as being part of God's will for him. And of course, he's, living in, he's a living example for us. And so then if we end up suffering persecution, we should not be surprised because in a sense, it's our turn. Uh, because that is, that's the will of God until the Lord returns. He says, I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. 
the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. So as he moves through this and talks about his suffering, he says that part of all of that is what his commission was, what it was that God wanted him to do, and that is to make the word of God fully known. And then after the, after the comma there, he talks about there being this mystery that's hidden for ages but is now revealed. And remember I mentioned to you that there are several different mysteries, or the word is used for several different mysteries in the Bible, but each time that's used, it's basically describing what was a mystery and has now been revealed. We, in other words, it's no longer a mystery. And that's what he says here. He says, um, uh, again, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now it's revealed to his saints. Well, what is that? Well, he says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so that's, so that's what he's letting them know that he is focused on and what he's paying attention to. So, number one, when he says to make this known among the Gentiles, remember that the word Gentiles, depending on the context, almost always refers to only one of two things. Either A, it's used in a way just to simply show that in a group of people, some are Jewish and some are Gentiles, meaning every other race there is except for Jews. Other times, the word Gentiles is just used as a euphemism for pagans, <clears throat> those that are outside the faith. And so here the idea is, is that um, God has chosen to make known how great among the Gentiles, I think here among, it could be pagans, it could be non-Jews, uh, either one of those would fit the context, but the idea is that people that understand the riches of God and this mystery is, is that Christ is in us. That's the idea that the divine lives in us. Now, so again, we don't become divine, so this isn't a form of Buddhism, uh, where the goal is for you to uh, become one with whatever divinity is. This idea is, is that that which is divine, which is God, lives in us as individuals. Now, I do believe that for maybe all of us, because we live in this country, that kind of speaking or that kind of phraseology about God being in us or, or having the Holy Spirit in us or having Christ in us is such a common thing that we kind of hear it as a common thing. It's not that big of a deal. Uh, it, it should be um, because we don't always understand what it means, but it's something we've heard a lot. In the days of Paul, when he talked about this, there was no religion that ever talked about any God dwelling in his people that was no one thought that the, in fact no one even had a religion where you had a relationship with God God was always someone that you feared or, or gods depending on what you believed but the gods or gods the god or gods were someone that you always feared it was always someone who had who I guess was often angry who uh, was good whenever he felt like it um, you would have to bribe him, hoping, or their gods, hoping that maybe you would be blessed in some way, whether it's your crops, or if your wife doesn't have children, you want to have children, or whatever it is you're looking for, you're just kind of hoping. Gods are also viewed as beings that could also be manipulated. If you read in the Old Testament, there were times when a, either a sorcerer, or a wizard, or maybe a, they, may, they sometimes would call them prophets, but just because the word prophets used doesn't always mean it's a prophet of God himself, but you would hire these individuals because they were the experts of, of all the other surrounding regions and of their religions. And so remember there was a time when uh, Balaam was hired to curse Israel. Well, the reason why he was hired to curse Israel is because he was basically a wizard. The wizard knows all about the religions of all these people, the names of their gods, and supposedly understands how they work. And, and because in those days, when you went to battle with your neighbor or with uh, an opposing army, the belief was always that if you won, it was because your gods gave you the victory, and your gods were greater than their gods, or 
if you hire the wizard, he's convinced their God to let you win because you bribed him or because of whatever the case may happen to be. And of course, if you read the story of Balaam, he was unable to do that because God would not let him do that. And it's a pretty good story. All right, so that's kind of the, the thinking that's going on. So m- most of the time, an idea that people had about God was religion was just almost like a necessary evil. You would do certain rituals, trying to make sure that whatever God or gods you were addressing weren't angry with you. If things bad still happened, sometimes you, would, you might go to someone trying to figure out, did you offend someone else's God? Um, so this idea, again, that you had a relationship with God, that God would speak to you, um, that you could speak to him, that he would answer prayer, uh, that you would have this relationship with him, uh, and then at this time that he would live in you, that's a foreign idea. People would be stunned by that. They would be thinking, what kind of God is this? This is magnificent. Imagine if God actually lived in you. You wouldn't have to carry him around, because they would think that way. You don't have to carry him around wherever you go. You carry your statue around, hoping that, you know, well, this is my God. Can't do anything, but this is my, they wouldn't say that, but they would carry him around. You don't have to do that. He's with you. Yes. Did the Jews also, the modern day Jews of that time, did they believe in the whole God and gods and like Well, some God? did. Remember, there's a lot of warnings about them not a, intermarrying with the pagans that are around them. And there were times when Israel would sin because they would actually set up um, places of worship for some of these idols. In some places build uh, altars or temples uh, of these other gods. And so the God would then basically after enough warnings, they would then be disciplined by another nation. And then after learning their lesson, God would send a prophet to tell them that God was going to deliver them. They would be delivered. They would do well for a while and then go back into idolatry. <coughs> so they struggled with that a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't mean that you're doesn't mean you won't sin. Right? Having being God's chosen people gave them special privileges and special responsibilities. But they but they were still required to obey God and they did not obey God. Um, there were sacrifices they could make for sin. Uh, but what you'll find throughout the Old Testament is that oftentimes when God was merciful towards Israel, it was because of what's called the faithful remnant. That's a small percentage of basically true believers within a nation of Israel that was faithful, and because of them, God would either show mercy or deliver them or what have you. But yeah, you would have rampant, uh, at times rampant, idol worship, uh, doing all kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, they knew. Uh, but again, that just shows us that that knowledge alone cannot make a man holy because we're unable to keep the law perfectly. And that's the requirement that God has, which again reveals the great need we have for God's mercy, kindness, and grace. Uh, we depend upon him. So that's what's going on. Here now is Paul coming along telling individuals that the one true God has sent his son, the anointed one. That's what Christ is. Remember the word Christ means anointed one. It's the same meaning as the word Messiah, anointed one. Christ is the anointed one. He's come. He's died for us. He rose again from the dead. And as a result of that, then I have this assurance that the glory that he has, I'm going to be able to have one day. I'm not going to receive glory because I'm great. I'm not. I'm going to receive glory because Christ has purchased that on my behalf by reconciling me to the Father, saving me from my sin. That's what all, and so we carry that with us. We have this hope. There was a man, uh, his name was pronounced either Epicurus or, um, there's another way to say it, Epicurus. I don't know which is correct. It doesn't matter. But way back, um, maybe during the time of the prophets or before, this man uh, was an atheist, which in those days, uh, like if you look at the Old Testament or even in the days of Jesus and Paul, an individual who was considered an atheist was somebody who freaked people out. And they, and in fact, you were bad luck and they would kill you. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with you because everyone, everyone assumed, well, of course, gods exist. 
And if you don't believe there's a God, we may end up dying or being cursed because of you. You need to die. So that's kind of the idea. So um, Epicurus was a, this kind of philosopher. And so he said, you know, he said, life would be a whole lot more fun if we didn't have this burden that we're carrying. And the burden we're carrying is there's judgment after we die. And everyone's running around with all this pressure trying to be good and do this and do that, that we just, we, we, our lives just are this mess and we're unhappy. And so it would be a whole lot better for all of us if we would just jettison the idea of God and just live for the moment. He's basically, in a sense, the father of hedonism to a degree. And, um, but, he, but he couldn't really quite say it that way because people would, they would want him dead. Uh, because you didn't run around saying you were an atheist. Today you can brag about it, but back then people would kill you for it. Um, so his idea was is that, this, that the, the normal person believed that there was more to life than just this life here. The average person believed that there was life after death. They all had different ideas as to what it was, but they all had that sense. And there was always this sense that if you did really wrong, or if you did great evil, no matter how you define evil, whatever religion you were following, if you did great evil and you didn't suffer as a result of it, most all the religions had some kind of teaching that you would be judged for that and things would be taken care of at that moment. So again, Epicurus was this guy who thought that's just a, that just really puts a damper on life and thought, thought that we should uh, get rid of that. But again, the norm, what most people thought, was that A, there is a supreme being, that there is life after death, that there is judgment, and there is punishment. Um, and um, of course, what happens is God revealed himself to help us understand, have a correct understanding of that. So when Paul talks about, again, this idea about Christ and the hope of glory, He's not, Paul's never really trying to convince people that God actually does exist. Everybody already believed that. This was the, this was the truth about God um, that God had given him. So the world then, as a whole, really knew nothing, had no idea about this, this idea that God would live among his people and much less live in his people. Um, and, of course, today, you know, people... Uh, they don't talk about it like you don't have our, you don't turn on the CBS news and they talk about someone's changed life because Christ lives in him. All right? They don't do that. All right? Yes, ma'am. So back then, these other nations, mm -hmm. because the Jews weren't too mixed, the other nations had no fathom of an idea mm -hmm. that their God exists, that type of living God exists. Well, they believe their gods lived, all right? but they believe that their gods were fickle. They believe their gods were like them. That was me, and that their gods were flawed, like them. That's but what they the believed. Oh well, we're talking okay in the knowledge of the true God, yeah. Right, right, except, right. except there's the a few, the yeah. There's a few wrinkles in that, which I think is really interesting, but we're not told about it except in a few places. So, for example, remember Abraham. God calls Abraham to leave his land. God makes this covenant with Abraham. Uh, God is the one true God. He talks to Abraham. And then Abraham's uh, nephew Lot gets kidnapped uh, by these kings that go to war with the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham gets his servants together, about 300 of them. They, they basically, they, they rescue these kings and rescue Lot. And this guy shows up, Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes, he's the king of Salem. And what does it say about him? He, is the, he, he knows who God is. He's a priest. In fact, I'll never forget this. I won't tell you what church it was. I was preaching in a church, and I talked about Melchizedek, and I said this. He was not Jewish, and people flipped out. They're thinking, There's, he, yes, he was Jewish. I go, how is that possible? Who was the first Jewish man? Abraham. Abraham. Melchizedek's already alive, so he's not Abraham's offspring. He's already there, and Abraham pays him tithes. He's not Jewish. Semite, is he Semitic? Absolutely. But he's not Jewish. All right, so we have this guy, and the Bible doesn't tell us. How does that guy know who the Lord is? And sacrifice, I mean, I don't, it doesn't tell us. I think it's really cool. 
But anyway. <laughs> All right. But then, of course, that takes us back to Romans 1. What does Romans 1 say? Basically, every single person who's ever been born and ever will be born knows that God exists. They know that God should be worshipped and know that God is angry about sin. Every single person knows that. So that's how we know that an atheist is basically lying to himself when they say they believe there is no God. They know, they really do know there is one. But what does Romans tell us they're doing? They're suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. All right, so they don't want to hear it. So, um, so that's why when we're sharing Christ, even with the person who's an atheist, I know that somewhere in the back of his brain, he knows that God exists. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to repent. But I, I don't have to spend all this time trying to convince him that God exists. We can talk about it for a little while. But I actually already know he knows he does. You know, but they're not, they're not going to be honest about it. Um, that's why a lot of people will say, well, I'm not really an atheist. Because if you know, if you think about it, an atheist is someone who says, I know there is no God. Well, the only way you can know there is no God is to know everything. To know everything is one of the attributes of God. So you're basically saying, I know there is no being that knows everything because I know everything and he doesn't exist. So we can't really say that, right? So that's why those who have thought about it would say they're agnostic. And what they're saying is, well, there may or may not be, but I don't think there's really enough evidence that's out there. It, it's kind of lame, but that's, that's where they are. All right? Okay. So, again, this thing that Paul is, is been charged by God is to talk about Christ and the transforming power of Christ and the hope of glory uh, that we have with him. So let me just kind of go through, there's a lot of ways to describe the Christian life, to describe the effects of the gospel. There's just tons of ways to do it. All of them are accurate and wonderful, but think of it in this way. So it talks about the change that happens in a person's life, because that's what Paul still keeps getting back with, with these, with these people in Colossae, is they are to be different, they are to live different because they're Christians, because they believe in Christ. Um, he's going to say in chapter 2, he doesn't want them to be duped by vain philosophies because it's going to lead them astray. And, and oftentimes you find when a person's led astray, let, they may be led astray in what they believe, but almost always, if not always, includes, it leads them astray in behavior. Right? You begin to act differently. You begin to treat people differently. There's all kinds of things that go on. So when it comes to this idea that Paul and what Paul is to preach about Christ, we talk about the new birth. And even though when, we, when a person becomes a Christian, they are then justified, they are declared just by God, and they are completely saved in every way. At the same time, it begins a process where God is perfecting us. God is making us like his son, Jesus Christ. And part of that process is the indwelling Holy Spirit of God that interacts with the Word of God that brings about, brings about that change and that transformation. And we are, very, again, accustomed to talking about that because even though there may be even a dramatic change in the beginning, I don't think you'll ever meet a Christian who says, well, you know, I've been saved for 30 years. I just don't need to change anymore. Right? That, that doesn't, you don't meet that person. Because what they're saying is, is I'm completely like Christ in every way. Without God, doesn't exist. All right? So that change is ongoing. It may not always be as obvious. It should be to you because we know that our inner attitudes are changing and those types of things. But this process does begin. God is, is beginning to perfect us in that way, our, 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 our soul, spirit, our body. Secondly, to advance that process, which is both in our conversion and also in our sanctification, which again, sanctification is the fancy word for growing in holiness. That process requires pain and commitment on behalf of others. If you think about it, it requires pain and commitment. Um, so, now, it doesn't always mean that, that their body is hurting, okay? But there, it, it could be there's a lot of anguish in a person's life. As, you know, if, if you're raised in a Christian home until you become a believer, your parents have anguish when they, when they think about your life. They want you to come to know Christ because they know that if you die... Without knowing Christ, they will never see you again. That, that's the reality of it. That's why, you know, 
I'm, I'm praying for the salvation of others, other people's children that I know, and even though I want them to be saved, I'm not going to experience for them the same kind of anguish they experience because that's their child. All right? And so there's, there's pain. There's, you know, people, they, we sacrifice time and effort, money, resources, to see people come to know Christ. Um, we're committed to seeing that. Uh, people, we're committed to that in our lives, and we are then to turn around and basically do that with others, um, to, to invest in them in that way. And so that's what Paul was doing. Paul, remember, uh, if you go through the testimony of Paul, and he talks about this in different, in different things. In fact, we've been going through this on, on Sunday mornings in 2 Corinthians. But remember, there are times that Paul was beaten. Paul went hungry. Paul was imprisoned. Paul was shipwrecked. He was left <coughs> for dead more than once. All because he was a Christian and he was trying to teach others and to declare the truth about Christ. So there's pain and commitment in his life as he seeks to reach those who don't know Christ and to pour his life uh, into others. Uh, and again, he tells us to imitate him. You know, he's an example. So we may not have it to the same degree, but that's the idea that's there. And then finally, all this progress, uh, this progress in our life occurs only by coming to understand and the practice of Christ in us. When we begin to recognize and understand Christ in us, there's many, many different things and different levels of that, but it was kind of like this. You know, when you're a little boy growing up, one of the things a little boy always does normally, especially when he gets a little older and he gets a little bit of wisdom, is when mom and dad are around, you do right. Mm -hmm. If you're going to mess up, you don't mess up when mom and dad are around, right? Mm -hmm. You do that at school, you do it with your friends at the playground, but you don't do that at home because they're going to hold you accountable and it can be painful. All right, so that's, that's, that's the idea. So sometimes what happens is, is people, they think this, and I've heard people say this, right? Like I've, I heard a lady once tell her child, we don't use bad language in church. Well, I'm thinking, why would you say that? It should be we don't use bad language. Right. But what she said was, we don't use bad language in church. That is kind of communicating that there may be occasions outside of church, it's okay. Right? I don't think that, now, I'm not saying that's what she was saying. Of course, it could have been how she lived, right? That's also what some parents do, right? In fact, I did hear another guy tell his son, you've never heard your daddy cuss in church. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, but he probably heard his dad cuss somewhere else, all right? So, so the idea, so sometimes we can approach Christianity that way. You know, when I, you know, like, I remember one time I was with my dad, because my dad, he would, my dad never told people when he was coming to their house. He just showed up. I, I don't do that. I, I almost, almost always call. Sometimes I just show up. My dad would always show up. So one time I was with him. We went to go see somebody. He knocks on the door and someone inside yells, who is it? And my dad said, it's Pastor Dimmitt. Man, did you hear a ruckus? There was just, you could just tell, there was a, they were busy on the inside. And my dad looked at me and smiled. And I'm like, like what's going on? He goes, they're cleaning up. <laughs> and like, why? He goes, because I'm here. I go, and then, you know, I'm not thinking. I go, was the house dirty? He goes, no, that's not the kind of cleaning up they're doing. And so, and then of course we walked in. Hey, pastor. And of course all that happens. Well, on a different occasion... Uh, there was a, a family, a, a husband and wife, they're having a lot of trouble. And so my, I'm with my dad, and I think he took me because they had kids, and the plan was that if the kids were up, I was supposed to play with the kids somewhere else while he talked to mom and dad. But when we got there, the kids were asleep. So my dad's talking about their marriage and different things. I'm just sitting there. And so then the wife gets up, and she goes, I guess, in the kitchen to make drinks or whatever. And so my dad's talking to the husband about some things, and... I could tell that my dad was getting really agitated with the guy. And because I, you know, I knew my dad, and I could just kind of tell by his tone of voice. And then all of a sudden my dad says, Well, I know for a fact what what part of the problem is. And the guy says, What do you mean? Now we're sitting on the couch. My dad bends over, sticks his hand under the couch, and pulls out some magazines. And then he puts them back right away. I'm like, <laughs> you know, and the guy is just like that. And so then the conversation changed really rapidly. 
Um, and they, and he came very serious. And he made like so. When we got back to the car, I, I, all I asked was, "How did you know that was there?" And he said, "Oh, when I when I came in, I saw it in the corner of my eye." <laughs> but you know, it was just so dramatic. I know what the problem is. <laughs> right here on Liberty Back. So anyway, so we have both. Say again. So all that to say, we have this idea that when certain people are around, we behave a certain way. And part of Christian growth is we recognize that God is always seeing us. In a sense, God is always with us. And it matters how I live, what I do, all the time, not just in front of other people. We're not to be man-pleasers. We are to live to please the Lord. And that then means all the time. So it matters to God what we're like when we're not in church. It matters to God what we're like at home or with our friends or whoever. Um, and it makes a difference. And God demands holiness from us on all those occasions, not just one day a week or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so that's kind of this, so that's this progress uh, that will take place when we come to understand that. Um, and some of us understand it, again, fairly early. So again, the hope of glory is an expression that means that Christ is our hope, he is our hope of receiving and participating in glory because of what he did. Again, his death and resurrection. Uh, and the Gentiles could expect to share in that glory. It was not something that was only for the Jews. It's for all those who believe in Christ, regardless of what their background is. That, that's true for the hope of Christ is true for every single one of us, uh, which is, again, a magnificent thing uh, for us to, uh, to think about. So looking at verses 28 and 29, again he says, Him, speaking of Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. So again, during this time, Paul, he did not come proclaiming any political philosophy or philosophy in general. He didn't come with a system of theology. He didn't come with a theory of knowledge. He didn't preach himself. He wasn't, uh, in, he wasn't concerned about his own opinions. He wasn't uh, running around trying to be entertaining by telling a bunch of stories and illustrations. He came preaching, or we could say declaring Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. And that's what we are to do. It doesn't mean that you can't have your opinions and all those other things. You can't. But there is a message that all of us are supposed to declare uh, to everyone that we meet. We are to publicly declare the case, to declare it plainly and openly concerning Christ. Uh, that is the focus of every single ministry. Uh, when it comes as a church, when we evaluate ministries that, that we support, um, you know, we look at a lot of things, but one of the things we do look at is... Is there a declaration, is there a, a regular declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because there's a lot of really good ministries in the sense they do a lot of good, but they're, like, they're feeding the poor. Well, that's good, but if that's all you're doing, there's plenty of other people that do that. All right? We want to do that, but we also want to make sure that we're giving them the gospel. All right? Now, we're not saying, I'm not going to feed you unless I can tell you. No, it's not that. But we want to do all these things because we are Christians. We are driven by our love for others, which is because Christ has poured his love in our hearts. But that is the message. When we are helping those who are down and out, whatever, whatever the, whatever's going on in their life, what we understand is one of the main reasons why they're having the difficulty they're having is because they don't know Christ. And that needs to be addressed. And we want to, we want to do our best to help them, uh, to understand that, to hear that message. Uh, and so that's why, again, all of us have that, have that responsibility. And we want to make sure that that is being done. We want to make sure that we are declaring it. Uh, and so when he says that we are warning everyone, in the Greek language, the word warning there is what we call present tense, which means it's just continuous. It's just what you do on a regular basis. Um, you know, you don't, have, you don't have to necessarily have a preaching time. It's just, it's just a part of who you are uh, as an individual. 
So he says that we are warning everyone, or maybe uh, your translation may have the word admonishing. What that means is we're cautioning, we're gently reproving, we're exhorting. Uh, the word means to literally place in the mind of the person you're speaking to. Uh, you're giving notice beforehand of danger or evil by reasoning with them. So again, the goal is not to scare them with some emotional story. You can tell them a story. It's not a big deal. But we're never trying to manipulate anybody into the kingdom. We're not trying to manipulate somebody to believe in the gospel. We want to tell them what the truth is. And we want to, we want to answer them directly and forthrightly. Uh, we want to make sure that we're, that we're making the gospel clear. Um, sometimes individuals, sometimes even churches will have this discussion. And they might be trying to figure out, let's say, maybe the best way to present the gospel. Okay, that's not necessarily a bad question, because we want to make sure that we present it. There's a lot of ways to present the gospel. You can present the gospel in a movie. You can present the gospel in a drama. You can present the gospel in just a talk. There's a lot of ways to do that. The, where, it, where it can get off track is not if we're trying to make the gospel more understandable. It's when people are trying to make the gospel easier to swallow. That's when you begin to have problems. You know, and so let, let's say that let's say that the hot topic was, okay. So let's uh, let me try to give an example of that. So let's say that you're you're go, you're uh, okay. So there was a guy I was talking to once. I was uh, I've told you this before. I won't go into all the details, but I was meeting with a, a guy who was dying of AIDS. He, he was a, a very outspoken homosexual. So when I began to meet with him, uh, the meetings I met with him is his dad asked if I would do his funeral when he died, and I said I would. I said I would like to talk to his son, uh, and his son was willing to talk to me. And so he knew we were going to get together and start talking about spiritual things. So when I got together with him, the very first thing I did not do was say, I know that you're gay, you're going to go to hell because you're gay. I did not say that. That's because that's not the point, all right? It's, it's not about his gayness, all right? It's about the fact that he's separated from God, period, because of his sin. And so I wanted to be able to explain a lot of things to him about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I wasn't, tr so I didn't stay away from that. I wasn't saying, well, I'm not going to talk about homosexuality because if I do, then he won't believe in Jesus. No, I'm not doing that either. Okay. So I'm not going to force it down his throat, but I'm not going to avoid it. So I would go over on Tuesday nights. We would talk for about two hours. And on the third time that I was there, as we went through that, then I did. I brought up homosexuality and, and I brought up, this is what the Bible says. And I explained it to him, and I explained what it wasn't, what it didn't mean, and I explained what it didn't mean. And then as we talked, um, he actually said thank you. He said he had never, hey, no one had ever explained it to him. I'm not sure he would have been in a position to really want to listen. But when you know you're dying, sometimes you will do things you wouldn't normally do. Um, and so we had a great talk about all these different things. And as we did... Um, there was, he, he didn't, he didn't say, that's it. I don't want to talk to you. None of that happened. So we, we ended up meeting two more times. I do believe that the last time as we talked, he ended up becoming a believer. I can't say hundred percent for sure because 48 hours after we met, he went into a deep coma and he never came out of it, which, and I knew that was, I knew there was a chance when you have AIDS, it's kind of the way things go if you don't get other diseases. And that's, that was happening with him. Um, so the, so the thing is, is that I was trying to engage his mind. I want to explain to him the gospel. I was reasoning with him from the scriptures about life, about sin, about rebelling against God, about everything. I was, I was wanting him to understand in one sense, if you want to put it this way, the logic of the gospel. Here's man, uh, here's man's problem. Man is separate from God. And when man dies, he's going to hell. He's going to be judged for his sins. There's nothing good in any of that. And there is no solution. Zero. There's nothing you can do about this. You can be good. You can, you can give money. You can do all these things. It doesn't uh, affect the outcome at all. And if God had not have done something, you're kaput. This is what God did. And this is why God did it this way. And it reveals the graciousness of God, the justice of God, all those things. And so even, and, and explain again that God must punish sin. He you knows God is a God of wrath, but he's not some wildly angry man or angry God just because he's in a bad mood. It's not what it is. 
What it is, is he has a standard of holiness. And he has created us in a particular way. Sin has messed it up for all of us in all kinds of ways. All right? So there's not, like this, there's not any one special sin that keeps anyone from God. It's all of our sin. And we are completely separated from him, whether we sin greatly or sin a little, however you want to describe that. And so that's what I was doing with him. So I was warning him, I was admonishing him, but I wasn't angry with him. And I didn't sound angry with him because I wasn't. Uh, I just knew this man needed to understand the gospel. I wanted him, so my thought was this, if he's going to reject the gospel, I want him to know what he's rejecting. That's what it is. I want him to know what it is. I want to make sure that I can answer every single question. And I asked him, as we kept talking, I would ask not only if he understood, if he had any questions. And I wanted him, you know, because he may have heard, you know, people sometimes can really misrepresent Christianity. They can misrepresent the gospel. Even, even Christians can do that. And so I wanted to make sure that I was answering any doubts he had about anything I said about who, or, or maybe who Jesus was or all those things. And so that's what, that's what I was doing. That's what Paul did. And that's what I was trying to do with him. So the idea then is you want to lay it on the mind or the heart of the person. You're trying to influence them. All right, not just their intellect, but you want to influence their will, you want to influence their emotions, you want to influence their disposition. So again, we're not trying to brainwash them, we're not trying to trick them or manipulate them, but we are trying to influence them. If you think about it, in any normal human conversation, if people disagree on something, if we're going to be honest, both people in the discussion are trying to influence the other person. That would be expected. The moment someone says, well, I'm not really trying to influence you, then what are we talking about? Okay, you don't even care about this. If you're not trying to influence me, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. no fun. Besides, you know, I mean, if I, I, want, what do you, I, want, I want to talk about what your heart's into. All right, so if you don't care enough about this, then we'll just talk about something else. All right, so we are trying to influence and We don't have to hide that. All right, but again, we're not manipulating and we're not trying to uh, bribe them or any of those kinds of things. So the idea is to counsel them uh, uh, so they will stop or maybe avoid whatever the improper conduct and belief is. Uh, in the Greek language, there's a, a, a collection of words uh, that are, are associated with, with a Greek word that we would call nathetic. There's various forms of that. that all has to do with the mind. Uh, and so that's why we never bypass the mind uh, when, we're, when we're talking to an individual about the gospel. Uh, so again, you may be emotional, but... There's a school of thought. I don't know if they, I, don't know if they, I guess there's some who still do it. The idea is you really want to target the emotions of people and try to get them worked up so they'll come to Christ. I just, I don't think that's, that, to me, that's manipulation. We're not trying to do that. We're not trying to scare people in the head. I don't think you can scare people in heaven anyway. Uh, you, you might scare them for a while, and they might even pray a prayer. I don't know if they really know Christ. I think, I think we'll find out within a few days, maybe a few weeks. And the Bible talks about that, I think. You know, you look at the, the uh, parable of the, of, the, of the soils that Jesus talked about. And there are individuals who appear to be saved, but then there's no root. Uh, you know, there's no fruit. There's, there's no salvation there. So we want to make sure that, uh, again, we're doing that. Now, we don't use, don't use that as an excuse to not try to persuade them. We are trying to persuade them. All right? And we are going to be driven by emotions in a sense. So it's, it, we're not being stoic. But again, I'm not trying to get them to cry. I don't, I don't you know, I'm not talking to, to her and saying, you know, I want, to get to, I want to get to a point in my presentation, there's a story I know about this little kid. And I know when I get that story, man, I tell it really good, she's going to start crying. And when she cries, man, she's putting my hands, I can do whatever I want. Now, a lot of people, won't, they won't think that through that way, but that's what they do. And we're not, we're not doing that. Right? We, in fact, we have to hate that. I've seen it happen a lot when I was growing up. My dad didn't do that, but I saw that a great deal. And uh, it just wreaks havoc in the spiritual lives of individuals because we end up telling individuals they're saved when they're not. Uh, so we have to be careful with that. So we want to make sure that we are explaining these things. Again, that's what Paul is doing. And that's why Paul sometimes spends so much time explaining things and making sure people understand. So it is then, it does, it, there is then a skillful use of logic. That doesn't mean you have to take a class in logic. You don't have to do any of those things. All you have to do is explain what you know to be true. 
right? Everybody uses logic every day. If, you, if you've ever had any interaction with kids, kids naturally think logically. They are very much aware when you do something that's not logical. Right? So we don't have to teach them logic. That's just how we normally communicate. And that's all we're doing here is we're just trying to communicate the truth of the Word of God. So again, he says, Him, again Christ, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. So again, the goal of the Christian ministry is not just simply salvation. That's obviously a very extremely important aspect of it. But Paul here says, ultimately, the presentation of the believer before the Father as mature in Christ is the goal. That we may present what? Everyone mature in Christ. Right? In the same way, when you have kids, hopefully you don't do this. I don't know of anybody who does. No one says, I have kids now, and when they reach age three, I don't want them to grow. I want them to stay three for the rest of their lives. Because <laughs> they're just so cute. Well, they probably are, but they can get old after a while. Now, I've heard people talk about dogs that way. You know, there's these little miniature dogs, and people, people do this. They want to find drugs that will make that dog look like a puppy forever. All right? But, you know, whatever you think about that, I don't think that's a good idea, but that's what people talk about. But we don't do that out of human beings. We, we, want, we, want our, we want to see our kids grow up. It might make us sad that they are growing up, but we want to see them grow up. We want to see them, like even though we have daughters, we don't want them to get married, but we actually do want them to get married. We want them to have a family because we want to have those grandchildren, all right? We want to see that. It can make us sad that maybe certain aspects of life are, are over, but we're also happy and look forward to the other aspects of life. Like a lot of us, I mean, I've always looked forward to old age, but not all the things that go with it. <laughs> I like some of the things that go with it, but not all of it, all right? And that's how we are. So that's what he's talking about here. You know, it's not like, well, you know, it's like, I'm so glad you guys are converted. That's it. No more. No, it's not what it is. The word teaching here is very interesting. It's, uh, let me give you, a, this is a long definition, but nonetheless, it helps to really describe what's going on in teaching. All right? So, basically, it's holding a discourse with others in order to instruct them. You may be delivering a didactic discourse. You're imparting instruction. You're explaining doctrine. You're explaining or expounding something to someone else. You're communicating to another the knowledge of that which uh, they may have been ignorant of before. You are exhibiting or instructing by precept or by example or experience so as to impress the listener's mind. Basically, you're talking to them and you're trying to explain the truth. That's what that is. We do that all the time. We do it with our kids. We do that with people. All right, that's, that's what that is. We want to explain the gospel to them. We want to explain to Christ. What Paul's talking about is doing that. Uh, when Paul gave his sermon on, on uh, Mars Hill, you know, he was quoting from some of the secular philosophers. He wasn't saying these secular philosophers, they've got it. No, he was taking something they said that was truthful and, and something they were all identified with because, oh yeah, I've heard that before, and then explain the truth of it in light of what God has said and what God has done. Showing that sometimes man gets certain segments of it correct. But the goal is to always bring them back to Christ and their need of Christ. And that's what he's doing. Uh, again, if you have kids, when you teach your kids about God, that's what you're doing. You know, we start really easy, right? In the very beginning, when our kids are young, you know, you may, you may even have a book. And it has Adam and Eve. And we'll say, these are the very first people God made, Adam and Eve. And we tell them the story. What are we doing? We're teaching them. We're explaining to them the truth of the Word of God. That before there was anything, God existed. God always was. It's hard to understand, but God is eternal. And we, and we, and we explain those things. That's, that's all that that is. And that's all that we're doing. So, but I, and I want you to remember this. As a Christian, you probably know a whole lot more than you think you do. Because sometimes we keep thinking this. Well, I don't really know enough to talk to people about God. You probably know a whole lot more than they do. Right? You've been going to Sunday school and church. And what have you been doing? You've been listening. You know stuff. If you are able to tell a person the, the real meaning of Christmas, you know that's theology, right? That's what that is. That's, that's theology coming out of the Bible. You're talking about the incarnation. You're talking about this incredible plan that God has, that God himself invented, that God himself developed, that God himself planned to bring about the salvation of man. And you're able to explain that to someone. 
So you know stuff they don't know. And you know the why that they don't know the why of. So you are, every single one of us is capable of at least explaining what you know. That's the, that's, the, that's, that's the responsibility we have, to at least explain what you know and understand about God. So if there's things you don't know, don't explain it. Because you can't anyway, because you don't know it. And that's okay. Right? I've said this many times before. Someone asks you a question you don't know the answer to. You know what you say? I don't know the answer to that question. That's really good. You could even say, gosh, I should know the answer to that. But I don't want to steer you wrong. And then you can always, you know what I always say, guarantee another conversation. You know what? I'm going to look that up, and we're going to get together again so I can tell you what I learned. How great is that? And then you can pray every day for them, that God will work on their heart with what they heard from you until you bring them back the answer to their question uh, that, uh, that they want to understand. So teaching really then is the orderly presentation of Christian truth. That's all that it is. And it's a responsibility that all of us have. We are, it is teaching, we're teaching in such a way as to shape again and influence the understanding and the will of the individual that we're talking to. That's what we're doing. And that's what Paul was doing. And that's what he's talking about here in Colossians. So next week as we move into chapter 2, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about what is the specific teachings that is causing the problem in Colossae. And we're going to look at that and hopefully have a better understanding of that. And then as we then get into chapter 2, it'll make more sense, not that it doesn't make sense now, but it'll make more sense with that background as to why Paul says the things he says and the way he says them. Um, And I think it'll help us because, again, as it says in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. So that means when it comes to all this false teaching that's out there, it's not really new. It's, it's been, it just takes, sometimes it's different vocabulary, but it's the same. Uh, you know, when, when New Age came along and that was real popular, people kept talking about New Age this, New Age that. New Age is nothing more than just a different way to talk about Hinduism. <laughs> Hinduism has been around for thousands of years. It's not new. Um, and before that, again, you had various forms of Gnosticism. And before that, you know, whatever label you want to use, man's ideas, they're just, they're not new. Um, And the truth of God's word can cut through that and bolster our faith because we realize that we're standing on solid ground and can help individuals recognize that they're standing on sinking sand and they can just take that step of faith and stand on solid ground like we are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, as always, we're grateful for the time you've given us. We pray that you would help us to continue to think about those things that Paul has given us in Colossians. We ask, Lord, that we would think often about our faith and about the responsibilities that we have. We pray, Lord, that people will not feel overly burdened, that they'll, feel, that they'll somehow feel that this is a chain around their neck to tell others about Christ, but that really it can be a, a thing that's fun, but that it's also a responsibility that we have. It's a responsibility that you have given us the strength that we need to fulfill, that you've given us the wisdom to be able to do so in a way that honors you, and that it just becomes a part of our life because of the wonderful things you've done for us. So Father, we ask now that you would dismiss us with your blessing, that you watch over us as we go home, and that you allow us to gather together again on Sunday, that Father, we may worship you in spirit and in truth, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.